Escape with us as we drive off to meet our special guest on what is our first episode of From the Horse Box. I'm Claire. And I'm Kate. And we will be chatting to many interesting characters along the road with a shared interest in the countryside and its wildlife. Today we give a warm welcome to Charlie Barnett, who has managed many prestigious racing venues, including Aintree and Ascot. Having read some podcast tips, I think the best one was to make sure you have a drink to hand to help the vocal cords. So I've chosen some champagne to celebrate our first episode. I'm in the driving seat with no drink. This is our first recording in the horse box, all within government guidelines. So Charlie, tell us what's in your glass. Well, in, in the winter, I quite like whiskey and soda. In the summer, I'll go for a gin and tonic, please. Good choice. The views from your house are stunning. This countryside must give you enormous pleasure. Well, it, it surely does. I've been very lucky to live in the countryside all my life, really, apart from a few years when I was in London. And I was used to go out home to Oxfordshire, where we lived for every weekend, if I possibly could. It really is very nice to live in the countryside. Can you tell us what wild flora and fauna you see around your woods and garden? Well, we're very lucky because there's lots of stuff to see there, really. Obviously, in the woods, there's all the wild animals you'd expect. Badgers, foxes, rabbits, hares. I'm always pleased to see lots of hares. And we're very lucky with the birds because you get woodland birds as well as garden birds. So we see some interesting things, like I've seen a tree creeper quite regularly there, nuthatches, all types of woodpeckers and so on. So it's a very, very nice place to be. You've got a lot of um, traditional woodland, haven't you? Now, horses have always been a part of your life. What other things do you enjoy doing in the countryside? Well, I've always enjoyed just actually being in the countryside, but I've done shooting, obviously, and, and, and a bit of um, fishing as well. And fishing is a lovely thing to do, and you want to concentrate hard on something, and, uh, and you haven't got to worry about the world. You went to Eton. Do you keep up with many friends from school? Oddly enough, Kate, most of my closest friends now are friends from school or from from home when I was growing up. And although I've got quite a good good few friends from from university, I've kept up more really with my mates from school. You then read law at Oxford. Was this very full on? And how did you balance the academic and leisure time? Well, it's extremely full on. Luckily, had sufficient time to play polo three days a week in the summer. And I was marshal of the drag home, so that was two days a week, and I went hunting a third day. So it was only in my last year, I got rather panicky about my degree and had to work jolly hard. But luckily, I, I did get my degree. Yes, it sounds very full on. Did you do a lot of competing um, and race riding? Well, we, I had point-to-pointers, so we were riding a point-to-points at that time, um, as, as well as uh, uh, playing polo. And also, polo is pretty competitive. And the Oxford and Cambridge Mac was, was, a, was a big, big deal for us. And so I got a half blue for polo. I got a half blue for point-to-pointing, ridiculous as it was. It was an Oxford versus Cambridge steeplechase. And finally, I got a half blue for clay pigeon shooting. So it was really good fun. Now, you worked at a firm of solicitors, Linklaters, for two years. Has your legal knowledge been useful at all? Yeah, very useful. I think you go back to that a lot when almost any job you've been doing, all the jobs I've been doing, I find myself constantly thinking about things which might have a legal ramification. It's been very helpful. And then together with Georgina and your young family, you moved to Malpas to work for the Bibby Line. Was life in Cheshire very different to life in the south of England? Yes, it was. We had uh, we knew nobody really here at all when we came. We had two two people we knew, uh, and otherwise we just had Flora's a tiny baby. So 
when you have a little baby, you kind of meet lots of people, don't you, as you go around and about. So it was great fun. And we lived over at Eton by Tarpley in a rented house and then bought the roundhouse at an auction, which was pretty derelict farmhouse out by Morpus and moved there and did the work and lived there for, whatever it was, 16, 18 years before we moved over here to, to Rose Hill. You've always enjoyed your hunting with the Wednesday. What was it like for the Barnet family getting so many of you ready for hunting? It was busy, to say the very <laughs> least, as you, I'm sure you know. Uh, but it was tremendous fun, really. And those sort of family days with everybody in the horse box and the ponies and struggling getting cleaned beforehand and afterwards. It was really, really good fun. It was the most enjoyable time, it really. It is a, very much a family uh, occasion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Have you hunted with any other packs? Well, I, I grew up in, in Oxfordshire, as I said, and so I hunted with the Bister there from from when my first memories, really, from when I was, I suppose, eight till we moved up here. Uh, and we had a lot of fun there. And, of course, I was master of the Oxford Drag, so we hunted the drag, which was, you know, really just a good gallop around the countryside, to be honest. I remember some years ago, an event called the Midnight Steeplechase. Can you tell us how this idea came about? Well, I think... Georgina and I were, were talking about how we could make some money for the hunt one way or another. And she said they'd had a middle-aged superchase up in Scotland where she came from. And it seemed like a great idea to me. And um, <laughs> it was, as you recollect, quite a chaotic and fun occasion, to be honest. It did go on till about midnight too, I seem it, to remember. It, it, it did. It was a great party. You had to have the movie. lights on the fences by the end of the evening. We did have. We put the cars against the fences, didn't we? I do remember Thomas Greenall being swept off by a branch. And the finale um, of the race, what do they have to do for the finale? They have to jump of the back race? into the bed, if you recollect. In their pyjamas. So tell us about your move from shipping life to sporting life. It was, it was suggested to me by a headhunter in Manchester that I should consider looking at the job running Haydock Park Racecourse. So because we'd had a certain affinity with racing and horses, I thought it was an interesting one to have a look at. So I went along there and was given the job to run Haydock. In 1983, was it or four? 84, perhaps. Um, and it was slightly, it was a different sort of business entirely, really, because while they're both service industries, you're dealing with a lot of customers on a race course, which is much more than you do on, on a shipping in the shipping world. And it was tremendous fun actually going there, and, and that was the beginning, really, of quite a nice career I've had in racing. Whilst working at Hedgehog, Peter Darsbury asked you to help out at entry in 1993, which was the year of the void race. Luckily, it was not you in the hot seat. Tell us what happened. The, the December before that, John Parrott, who was running Aintrid, had a heart attack actually hunting with the Winston and died. So Peter asked us to go over and give him a hand for that year's Grand National while I was still at Haydock at the time. So I was brought in as a sort of manager to pull the show together. So I was standing at the start, actually, and there was a bit of a fracas going on before the first fence. There was a demonstration. Um, it was blowing quite a strong wind from the east, so everything was blowing into the horses. And uh, it was, you know, a, fo a full start. It was absolutely extraordinary. No one really quite knew what was going on. Some of the jockeys were aware of what had happened, others weren't. And when they came around for the second circuit, they tried to stop them because then you could theoretically restart the race. But the ones in front kept on going and therefore the race was obviously going to be void. And I think Peter O'Sullivan commentary realised that that was the case as well. So um, it was a void race and then the public wanted to know what the devil was going to go on, whether their bets were void, could they get their money back from the bookmakers, all that sort of stuff. And it was quite a difficult job to unwind at the end of it all, but... There was no drama really, no, nobody was killed, nobody was injured and it was a, 
one of those events that were part of the Grand National's rich tapestry. Yes. Now, on normal race days, Claire has a vision of you <laughs> celebrating with owners in champagne bars. Well, I think of you dashing around doing it the nitty-gritty. Who is the closest? Well, Kate, you are spot yes. on. <laughs> you are absolutely spot on. I, I always made a rule never to have a drink on a race day because... Otherwise, you're going around to see lots of people all the time. So everything's all right in their corporate hospitality boxes or at their table. And um, they say, oh, come on, have a drink. And I said, well, I don't want to have one because I'll have 21. So I never had a drink till after everybody had gone at the end of racing. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, Claire. <laughs> well, you were invited to all the, uh, these fabulous parties, but you just couldn't go then. Well, I just went busy. in to see that they yeah. were happy rather yes. than yeah. and they were having a good day and the food was up to scratch or whatever. It's just the excitement, isn't it, of the race day that we see as viewers? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, that's what it should be like, really, mm. shouldn't it? Yeah. People who are watching on television or, or there on a race day should enjoy the bits of it rather than worrying Charlie, about the things. Charlie, organising it meanwhile. Yeah, well, worrying about whether the loser blocked or something, which is what <laughs> I was worrying about. And what about the incredible sights at entry? Does anything in particular stand out? Well, lots of things stand out, Kate, as you can probably imagine. We started Ladies' Day, uh, which was a, a tremendous triumph, really. And I can remember the girl who was in charge of our sales and marketing at the time. I said to her one day, how are the sales going for the meeting? And she said, oh, they're going like mad on Ladies' Day. I said, what's Ladies' Day? She said, oh, well, they all call Friday Ladies' Day, all the local guys. I said, right, we're on. We're calling it Ladies' Day now from now on. And it was be really a... Tremendous, tremendous success it's been. And we had a lot of fun with that, with the the Liverpool girls who really enjoyed the day, dressed up, wonderful. You oversaw a lot of modernisation at Aintree. How difficult is it to preserve tradition as well as making changes that have to happen? And um, can you tell us a bit about progressing to sharing Aintree with overseas, um, Hong Kong and China? Well, I think you're right. It's very important to keep the sort of tradition there. And one of the, the big concerns we had when we moved the, the weighing room was getting rid of the old unsaddling enclosure and weighing room. But it always struck me that there were, you know, the world's most famous steeplechase, probably the most important race in the world. And when the winner comes in, about you know, 500 people could see it. And it was, while it was a big crime, it was a good atmosphere. If you're there, for, for the public, they couldn't really see it. So I thought if we could try and change it round a bit when we were doing the main developments. And I think actually it does work quite well now. And I like the idea of the horses coming underneath the grandstands to come into the unsaddling enclosure and more people can see it now than, than could in the old days. And obviously it was important. Martel was sponsoring the Grand National then. And it was important for us to see what they wanted to do in marketing terms for their product. And uh, the Far East was a very important mar- market for Cognac. And so Grand National was beamed live into Hong Kong, Hong Kong Jockey Club, I think in 1992 for the first year. And obviously it happened in 1993 as well and thereafter. And we went to China to see if we could get it shown on Central China television, which is what we achieved. It was pretty important for them and therefore for us too. So it increased the worldwide audience dramatically by some hundreds of million. So it's very important to um, make changes when you have to. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. Now, we all remember the 1997 bomb threat on the Grand National Day and your statement on the BBC. How did you manage to remain so calm and, and control your feelings? 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because I, I mean, do remember it vividly. It was it was a, a day or two or three days to, to remember, really. I was up actually watching the race before the Grand National in the stewards box, which was the main control box for the race course, um, with Ian Renton, who was clerk of the course, and, and the telephone rang. It was a police control room, which was just over by the Grand National start. And he said, we've had a coded bomb threat, and we're just... We're just verifying with the military in London. And so I went back to the, my office, which was below the grandstands, and got the directors there at the same time. Uh, and w- when we got there, they told us the bomb threat was valid and that we had to evacuate the race course. So we started the process of evacuating the race course. And I remember walking down from the box to my office at the race course and saying to myself, well, this can't be happening to us, can it, surely? Anyway, after those initial feelings, you sort of start thinking about how we're going to manage the whole process. And it was a very, very big operation, really, for the police and for our team. It never ceased to amaze me how our team of security staff managed to get people out of the race course. Because by that time, obviously, we'd had a few drinks. You are talking about 70,000 people. And amazingly, within about an hour and a half, they got most people out of the grandstands and onto the roads outside the race course. So what time did the actual call come in? The call Way came before in. the National? Yes, it did, yeah. So, so the race would probably be at 3.45 then, so I should think the race before the Grand National was 3 o'clock. I guess the course would be in 2 o'clock, 2.15, something like that. So I was then taken to meet the, the police hierarchy, give us your sort of contract. The chap who's on site managing the police is called the Silver Commander, and his boss is the Gold Commander who's not on site. And he had to be brought to the race course area, and, and we had a... A procedure whereby we all met actually off, off site at another location. So I was taken off there by the, the police to meet him to, to decide what we we're going to try and do next. At the same time, public were all being pushed out onto the onto the roads. And eventually, after a bit of shilly shelling, we were taken down to police headquarters in the centre of Liverpool, where there was a meeting taking place, which obviously we were part of. With that was you know Peter Darsby was with me, our marketing and PR people, the sponsors were there, uh, and all the police and the local authority people were there because what they were concerned about was what were they going to do with 70,000 people on the streets of Liverpool? Were they, were they going to get home? Um, and so they had to organise accommodation for these people and open up schools and gymnasiums and everything else like that. But as it happened at the end of the day, there were only about 4,000 people they had to find accommodation for everybody else to more or less find their way home by hook or by crook. Almost everybody's got a good story to say about Yes, there are that, incredible yeah. hospitality stories. Were you, were you stories. there or not? No, but there are incredible time. stories from the people of Liverpool who offered hospitality. Do you remember? Oh, yes, particular? lots of that. And I, I, you know, if you people like Marcus Armitage, the journalist, for example, who I, I know well, he, he evacuated out through the horse box park in, into Melling Road and sort of knocked on the door of a chap there to see if he could write a script and everything in there. And those people are great friends of his now. He always goes to see them and has cups of tea with them now. And I think that happened quite a lot. And in a way, I sort of had in my mind that after 1997, you know, that people sort of realised that, first of all, people were really nice and really good fun and also mm-hmm. entertaining and very, very hospitable. And that the race was there. You know, it was in Liverpool rather than up at Entry. I mean, all, all part of Liverpool, of course. It, so it was amazing. It sort of brought everybody together. Really, I think it, it did. It was it did bring everybody together. Actually, it was, it was a very nice atmosphere after the event. Anyway, still the biggest ever evacuation in peacetime. So I understand. Yes, it was. I mean, it was it was quite extraordinary, really. And then I, what, what bothered me 
when I was dragged away by the police, obviously I had to go, um, was that everybody was out on the street not knowing what was happening. We had no means of communicating because all the loudspeakers faced into the race course, not onto the streets. And the only way they could get any information was really by listening to local radio, which I think a few people did. And then the whole process of going home sort of started. You mentioned that the cars were impounded in the middle of the race course and there were dogs and things and people needed to get to their dogs. Have you got any story about Well, I think I mean, no vehicles were allowed to leave the race course at all, although one or two managed to creep away. The police didn't really want us to take, let the horse boxes go, but we managed to persuade them that they should go. The horse, horses and horse boxes should leave the race course because we didn't want to deal with them, really. And I think one or two people did have dogs in cars, and I think the police were pretty sensible about that and sort of organised, allow them to leave and so on. Uh, and, and then, of course, when they weren't very keen to run the race on, on, on the following Monday, which is when we wanted to run it. And they um, were persuaded to do so, I think, by sort of political pressure to do so because it was quite important. It was an IRA-coded bomb threat and it was in the middle of a campaign where bombs had actually gone off at, at a cruise station and, and on the M6. And so they were, they were concerned not to allow it to be some kind of a sort of propaganda coup, I suppose, for the IRA. An amazing story of cooperation between you and all the racegoers and the police. Yes. Looking yes. back on it, sort of on a scale of 1 to 10, what was your heart rate, do you think? Uh, probably well to start with it was probably very high indeed but I suspect that you know as soon as you get planning. into planning mode you just concentrate on what you're doing and you know it's if I it's some entertaining moment during that whole 48 hour three day period well, lots of them really uh, and the main thing was to be able to get the race off on on the Monday five o'clock we had discussions with the BBC what's the best time to run it for you to get biggest viewing audience and they had to be just before the six o'clock news in those days so I think it was five o'clock or five fifteen we ran it which was getting perilously dark really but mm. it was it was fine really as it happened in the end and it was just remind us who won the Lord Galeen it was a local story, yes trained by it? Steve Brookshaw down, down the road yeah Tony Dobbin there's a great photograph of Tony Dobbin on the Saturday leaving the race course like all the jockeys did in their racing gear so he stood by a bus stop his racing kit colours and everything else like that and the jockeys all went to the centre of Liverpool because they couldn't get their clothes out of the way and they're all going on the train you, know, you can imagine the sort of Brilliant. some Liverpool wag saying you're just going home from work mate <laughs> after managing the crisis so well at Aintree it was no wonder that you were asked to help them out at Ascot with their new stand how did you make such a success of it? Well, I don't know whether it was surprising or not. It was nice of them to ask me anyway, Claire, and it was very nice to go to Ascot. So you had to show them how to use the stand and make it work? Well, in a way, that's exactly what happened. There were quite a lot of small alterations were made to the grandstand, and I'm sure they're doing them every year now too, just to make it more sort of, well, some of it was a bit cosy, some of it to make it so you could find your way about more easily, how the division between the different enclosures worked. So it was quite, it was quite an interesting thing to do. And, you know, we had a good, very good team of people. Now, were the Ascot race goers very different to those in the northwest? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think half the the thing of running a race course is to understand who the customers are, and certainly, you know, even Aintree, the crowd was different to those at, at Haydock. 
you've got different categories of closures and so on at, at Ascot. And, uh, um, there were more people who came, for example, to the Grand National who were keen on racing than we would get at, at Ascot. Where, I mean, particularly Royal Ascot, where half it's pageantry and fashion and the other half's wonderful racing. So it is quite different. Uh, and it's a question of trying to understand what those sort of crowds might want. So on the race course, you must be a connoisseur of picnics. What is in your ultimate picnic hamper? Well, I've never had much of a picnic, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> no, but if you could, you yeah. imagine you're on that idyllic. <laughs> well, we, we, did a, we did a deal with Fortnum and Mason, uh, so they could deliver picnics to people in the, in the main Royal Enclosure car parks. And I think their picnic campers look pretty pretty amazing, really. What would I really like in there? Well, I'm sure you'd have a smoked salmon sandwich, wouldn't you? And scotch. I think you should try Anson and Curtis nowadays, you know, too. A local. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I have seen Caroline there providing delicious food to other punters. I um, did see um, a cartoon the other day about a butler next to a picnic. There weren't really butlers, were there? Do you know there were? Really? It was amazing. And there were times when you get catering vans coming in to bring the picnic, which we didn't really like or allow. It was not supposed to be commercial. Um, but you certainly saw a butlers, and you'd see people laying a table out in the, in, in the weather, with, you know, with the conditions and everything else like that, and rather posh and ridiculous, really. <laughs> now, after Ascot, you were asked to work on eventing safety for the FEI. What was the best thing to come out of all your research? I think the best thing was really that it made the, the, the people look carefully at how they organised these collapsible fences, because the statistics showed when I was looking at it there were more fallers at those fences than at ordinary fences. And I think they sort of pushed it more forward to the whole way the courses were built. And maybe, I don't know whether there are less fallers or not now, to be honest, I haven't really seen their statistics, but that was the, that was the most interesting thing, I thought. And Georgina has a share in a very smart four-star horse. Do you enjoy watching him compete? Well, we've been a couple of times. We went up to um, Blair Castle and watched it up there, which was great fun. Uh, it's nice to go, but you need to be able to walk about in COVID times. It must be very difficult if you've got a venting world. So let's go back to the hunting. You've There's more time for it now. And we often see you on retired racehorses. Do you enjoy the challenge of retraining them? Well, I do, actually, yes, and I do like riding thoroughbreds, and very often they come from the racing field. And I've, I found that if you, if you have, a, if there's a good racehorse, it'll almost certainly turn into a good hunter. So I've been lucky enough to have two really good racehorses, one called Agawada Gold and the other one called Chives, and they both turned into pretty good hunters, really. So you're tra- retraining them as opposed to them retraining you? <laughs> More likely to be the latter, Kate. More now, likely to be the latter. We're in a very smart horse box today, but you must have seen some very smart horse boxes in eventing and racing. Would you like to tell us about your own trusty hunting box? And do you enjoy driving it? Uh, I don't mind driving. I don't want to go too far in it, really. Um, and it is functional. It doesn't have accommodation or cups of coffee or anything like that. And I enjoy driving it because I'm going to... Th- Somewhere where I'm going to enjoy myself, I hope. Do all the family drive it? Uh, no, just Georgina and I. The backdrops to racing and eventing are always beautiful places. We all know the environment needs a lot of managing to be kept to this standard. How important has this been in your experience? I think it's really important. I think when people come to a race course, they want to see a nice environment. And I've been lucky enough to the race course I've worked on 
generally are like that. So you go, I worked at Cartmel, which is completely beautiful up in the lakes, sitting outside there and on on race day, it's just magical. I mean, uh, Aintree is extraordinary because it's effectively in the middle of the town, but it is very interesting, very pretty, good wildlife there too. You've got a lot of interesting sort of waders and seabirds because it's very close to the Mersey estuary there. And and Ascot, of course, is is beautiful. It's a heathland in the middle and protected in the centre. It's very nice. So the racecourses play a big part in environmental They definitely do, and they do more of it than one would imagine. Now the next section we call quickfire questions. Flat or jump? Jump. What chore do you hate doing? Mucking out. If you won a million pounds, what would you buy? I think I'd pay off my debts. What's the best compliment you've ever received? Probably something along the lines of, You've set the bar very high for your race course. If you could be a fictional character, who would you be? Well, that's very tricky. I'm not sure I'd want to be James Bond. Perhaps Q. So personal chef or personal trainer? Well, I've got a personal chef at home anyway. So perhaps personal trainer. What book are you currently reading? Oh, I'm reading a rather interesting book about trees. I can't remember what it's called, but it's... Explains how trees can communicate with one another. Which two famous sports people would you like to have to dinner? Tricky. I sort of thought someone like Bobby Charlton, who's been a bit of a hero of mine, would be one. Ian Botham would be quite entertaining. Absolutely. Life in lockdown must have been a great contrast to your busy racing life. How do you feel you have coped? Well, haven't we been lucky, really? So I've been able to be at home in the countryside and do the things... I've been able to do all the time. That's very good to hear. Finally, we ask all our guests if they have a motto or a joke which has kept them going through the pandemic. Well, uh, we all know what it's going to be, Charlie. Do you? Yes. <laughs> you said it when you walked in earlier, actually. What was that? Don't look. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Thank you. Kate, that's very kind of you to remember that. We feel enormously grateful to you for joining our journey today on From the Horse Box and have loved everything you've shared with us. Even though you're always too busy to join in on the celebrations on race day, all your stories were winners today. Yes, we hit the jackpot with Charlie. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us. It's now late March with the Grand National just around the corner. In such tricky times, we will appreciate the race more than ever. If you have enjoyed From the Horse Box please press the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends and family. We will look forward to the first of the month when it could be you in the driving seat. (laughs) 